Welcome to I Fought the Lore, a podcast where we examine a paranormal tale and try to figure out why people still talk about it today. But we don't care about true or false. We're only interested in how or why some stories linger in the backs of our minds while others disappear completely. In the end, we'll try to figure out if the lore won or if the lore lost. We're your hosts, Ben McDewey and Rico Sweets from the Mean Streets. We're here to bring that magical tale to your teeny tiny tingly ears. Rico, man, you gotta be loving this, right? Loving what? Being lost again? Come on, we just had spooky month. Halloween. There was even a Friday the 13th in it this year. And, 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 now you have a date. Come on, man, have you met me? Date's nothing new for this guy. No, I mean a human date that probably won't try to eat us, murder us, or swallow our souls. And judging by the barely a logging road we're on, she's, what, a park ranger or a lumberjack and totally not a sexy Bigfoot? Told you. Call in a few favors. Her name is Lucy. Lucy Fair. She's a camp counselor. And we're just supposed to waltz on to private property while she's, uh, presumably working? Alright, let me pull over here. We're on foot the rest of the way anyway. Oh, dude, check it out, over there. Looks like some old clothes. Dude, 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 yo. Dirty old clothes in the woods? Don't touch those. They probably belong to some homeless guy. No, no, look, look. I think they're like old school camp counselor shirts. Oh, here, put this one on. Um, I think these are covered in blood. Blood? Nah, it's just dirt. Or maybe strawberry syrup? You know what? Maybe there was a food fight in the lunch hall or something. I don't know. Just put it on. I don't wanna. Come on, it's perfect. If anyone questions us, we can just say that we're counselors from nearby camps. We're here to say hi to Lucy. We all went to counselor training camp together. Here, you can have the one that says Camp Crystal Lake. I'll take the one that says Arawak. Two hours later. And the sun is setting, we're lost in the woods, and dressed like camp counselors. I've seen way too many movies as a kid to know this is not going to end well. And at least Jason Voorhees isn't free. Well, hey, uh, what about the burning? Rude and completely off topic, but if you must know, I haven't had a flare-up in months. Wait, what? No, the movie, the burning. Oh man, where do I even begin? Alright, but smash cut to the 70s. Oh. And the story of a guy named Cropsey. Oh. And as far as urban legends go, he's basically royalty. We're talking about the OG rumored homicidal maniac that escapes from a mental institution and had a hook for a hand. Oh. Right off the bat, this Cropsey fella is writing the urban legend serial killer playbook. Even if you didn't know the name, Cropsey was known by the friend of your friend to routinely hunt for children he could abduct and drag back to his lair in the tunnels that ran beneath the abandoned Seaview Hospital. Oh, oh! In most versions, Seaview is replaced by Willowbrook Hospital, state school for the mentally disabled that operated from 1947 to 1987. 
and I use the term operated loosely here, like as many similar facilities, it gradually devolved into a cesspool of abuse, filth, overcrowding, underfunding, morally bankrupt experiments, and generally horrible, horrible practices. I mean, Geraldo Rivera even did an investigative report there in 1972. The facility was forced to close in 87 and sat abandoned and has been crumbling ever since. Oh, oh yeah, oh, 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 hold on a minute, man, I gotta sit down for a second. Oh, you took me there. You just said urban legends started in the 70s, a guy who had a hook for a hand, an abandoned mental hospital, it was basically a prototype for the 80s slashers, my pants just got a little squidgy, and I think I may have had the best sex of my life. I need a cigarette and a sandwich. Not so sure I need that date we're talking about now, man. But you went uh, full peanut butter cup there. So according to Collider.com's Sam Williamson, Cropsey escapes from an asylum, like Willowbrook, after learning of his son's death, and in some version is horribly disfigured by burns, while in others he sports the iconic hook made famous in multiple similar tales. Cropsey had a wife. I mean, he has a son, so I assume he had a family. No one ever talks about the Cropsey's home life or how he winds up in the escaped asylum in the first place. Has there been a reason stated why he has burns, possibly? Or was it just one of those things with an urban legend where the guy's scary because he's ugly, blah, 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 blah? Yeah, I think, I think the inclusion of the burns is more just that, that added, oh, if you see him, he, he's really scary looking. Yeah, he's highly recognizable by his disfigured visage. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not it's bad enough that the guy is committed to an asylum, but he has to look horrible, too. Yeah, also hook for a hand. And hook for a hand. But that's just utilitarian, right? That's yeah. just because sometimes you need an extra tool. Yep. Right? Urban legends... 1960s, 1970s, and that hook for a hand. Man, we really have to cover the general hook-handed um, urban legend killer guy because I'd really love to find out what the other versions of this story are because when I was a kid, I knew the version that I knew. I knew the basic urban legend. Never said anything about where he was from, just an escaped maniac with a hook for a hand, but I'd like to know about the evolution of that kind of thing. Also, as I've mentioned before, the version that I knew at one point was of the moldy Dorito for a hand. For absolutely no reason other than to be silly. And I think I remember hearing that from an older cousin or my sister. Which is exactly how they go. And in typical urban legend fashion, Cropsey's shenanigans were also most often shared by older siblings and parents to ensure younger kids were adequately terrified into not staying out too late or not straying too far from their front door, because believe it or not, there was a time when kids spent most of the day and a good chunk of the evening outside, like physically away from a screen or phone where all the grass and the nature and the trees are. Uh, we're near nature and trees. If I really wanted to, I could reach out and touch a tree in these woods right now, but I'm not gonna, because trees are dirty. It's true. There's maybe ants and bugs on them. Why do I want to do that? Nature is filthy. Nature is dirty, just like my dates. In fact, the Collider article I mentioned even references Cropsey being a popular topic shared around campfires by counselors claiming that he's frequently cited at the very camp they're all attending. Ooh. And that, folks, 
That's how you get two dozen wet sleeping bags. Classic man, pure classic campfire tale. Urban legend at its finest. I had seen so many movies as a kid about summer camp and the scenes where the campers are being told ghost stories and urban legends around the fire were always something that made me jealous that I never got to go to one of those places. Even just regular camping is something that I never really did until I was in my 20s. And then the scariest thing about that was the prospect of running out of booze, which we never ran out of booze. Never. Now, for those of you who have been following along, first of all, merci. And second of all, you know that for better or worse, the next evolutionary step for most, if not all, urban legends is its moment on the silver screen. And it was no different for Cropsey. After all, we're in the early 80s now, and knee-deep in butcher knives and steadies and Slasher genre has taken film goers by storm, and in May 1981, the burning hit theaters like a headless cheerleader down a flight of stairs. Our first fun meta twist shows up here when I tell you that this movie was also just one of many brought to us by producer and real-life monster in his own way, Harvey Weinstein. Fair warning, our fun second meta twist gets even darker. Fun! What is my life? Oh, the burning. This movie was right at home in the early 80s when the studios started paying more attention to horror movies. Now, that's not to say that horror movies were a new thing. Horror's been around on film since the early days of silent movies. Nosferatu is probably one of the best examples of great silent film era horror and a great example of how important music is in a film. But by the early 80s, Halloween had just made buttloads of money in 78, making far more money than producers had thought possible. Friday the 13th followed in those footsteps, and other producers saw that small-budget horror movies were making back 10 times their budgets and wanted in. The film market was flooded. In fact, The Burning is kind of relegated to a cult following now and isn't as widely known as many of the others from that time, and it's kind of a shame. Now, have I seen this film? No. I have several times. But Wikipedia is going to do its level best to make it seem like I have. <laughs> so let's fade in on Camp Blackfoot, a bunch of campers that decide to play a prank on the grizzled old caretaker by attempting to give him a heart attack and kill him. Why? Shut up. That's why. <laughs> They place a skull on his nightstand while he sleeps. Where did the skull come from? Who knows? It's described as worm riddle. So did they dig it up in the woods and immediately think, hey, prank, and not, hey, alert the authorities. Don't worry about it. Cropsey, with no E in this version, wakes up, sees the skull with candles in his eye sockets, no less, and appropriately freaks out, resulting in his cabin and himself both being engulfed in flames. Great prank. I think he was supposed to be an alcoholic, and the idea of his booze-soaked clothes helped a little with the fire spreading so quickly. He stumbles out into the night and collapses into a river while the boys run away. Where? Away! Are they at a camp in the woods, presumably under the care of teenagers only slightly older than they are, being paid between zilch and minimum wage? Doesn't matter. The point is that despite his disfiguring injuries, Cropsy lives. Oh, and does he ever live. So Cropsey spends five years in the hospital before being released. Can you even imagine what the bill must have been? Anyway, he gets a hold of pr some pruning shears after killing a prostitute because Weinstein and makes his way to an entirely different camp, seeking topless campers, multiple sex scenes, and maybe some revenge. And guess what? He gets all three. Not only that, he gives it good to George Costanza. Now you might be sensing strong similarities to another franchise with 
similar themes, and that was no accident. Weinstein saw the success that Sean Cunningham had with a certain hockey mask. <clears throat> if I may nerd out here for a moment or two, the first Friday the 13th did not contain Jason, but contained his mother, Pamela, murdering the camp counselors. Jason only shows up in a dream sequence at the end, inspired by the movie Carrie, and there is no hockey mask until Friday the 13th Part 3 in 1982, also known as Friday the 13th Part 3 3D. Educate yourself. Nerd rant over. You all right, Ben? I'm, I'm, I'm working through some things. All right. All right. So, Weinstein aimed to repeat that success but releasing his movie between a year after the first Friday the 13th and the same week as Friday the 13th Part 2 Sackhead Jason did more harm than good. And while all this was going on, our second and much darker meta twist was gnawing away at the general public's imagination before dragging both the film Cropsy and Campfire Cropsy out of the shadows and into the headlines. As it turns out, Weinstein wasn't alone. Madman was another slasher film in 81, an axe-wielding murderer named Madman Mars, who, after accidentally being summoned by a group of campers during a campfire tale, begins to stalk and murder the young adults. Madman was not a good example of the 80s slasher film boom. That movie was just bad. Also being based on the Cropsy Maniac, the initial premise and main antagonist was changed last minute to Madman Mars due to conflicts with The Burning, which featured Cropsy as the villain, and happened to be in production at the same time. You gotta love when that happens. There are so many examples of films coming out at the same time, and one hits theaters just before the other, and people say, oh, this ripped off that, this ripped off that one, this one got here first. The reality is, it takes, you know, months, possibly even over a year to produce a film, not just write it. So a lot of these movies, like uh, Volcano, and yeah. what was what was the other one with? Oh yes, the one with Tommy Lee Jones. Where there was no, there was Volcano, and there was one. There was the one with Pierce Brosnan, and then the other one with Tommy Lee Jones. Yes, right. Yeah, and they came out relatively the same time. Or uh, Armageddon and Deep Impact. Yeah, and everybody thinks, oh, one ripped off the other. No, these were just ideas that somebody coincidentally had at the same time, or relatively around the same time, and two production companies started working on it at the same time, and they got out to the theaters coincidentally around the same time as well and that's what you've got here with the burning and madman mars they were probably in in production at the same time the two writers had probably written them at relatively the same time unknown to each other and it was the 80s slasher boom so you've got every producer is just jumping on a script that's ready or half ready or bare bones minimum just so they could get that that movie into theaters and make that money back yeah. Right. So the fact that they changed, uh, they even had time to change Propsy to Madman Mars in the second film, kind of surprising because they probably both would have been doing their pre-production and production at relatively the same time. At the end of the day, both Weinstein and I believe Joe Giannone, they're both from the New York area. They're both familiar with the Cropsy legend. They're both basing their movies on the same thing. But because the because the burning got out first, even because Madman is based on the same legend, yeah. obviously they couldn't make reference to the name Cropsy because someone had beat them to it. But yeah. they're both meant to echo the same original kind of template. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a possibility that if Madman Mars had been further into production at that time, maybe Weinstein would have changed the name of their killer in the burning from Cropsy to something else. 
or maybe neither one of them, if it had been a little more neck and neck, would have had time to even alter anything that they had already done. You could have gotten two films out at the same time with the same character in them, mm -hmm. just out of circumstance. So in Madman, near the end of the camping season... Madman Mars. Madman Mars. A group of senior counselors and campers are gathered around a campfire. One counselor named Max tells him the legend of Madman Mars, who murdered his wife and children with an axe in a nearby abandoned house. He was lynched and scarred by angry villagers, but somehow escaped from his noose into the woods. While the circumstances aren't totally identical, does a murdered family, a lynching, and escaped into the woods sound familiar? <laughs> so Max warns the campers that saying his name aloud will summon him. A camper named Richie mockingly shouts his name aloud and throws a rock through the window of Mars' old home to Max's annoyance. Which is funny because, you know, he's telling the story about a family being murdered in an abandoned house, which the campfire just happens to be right next to yep. said abandoned house. Yep. Also, he's telling them, you can't say Madman Mars's name in the woods, otherwise he's summoned. Who? Madman Mars. One more time? Madman Seriously, man? Are you trying to candyman me? Well, we'll get into that. All right. The funny thing about this is, yeah, Madman Mars... You can't say it in the woods. He's telling the story. And then the other guy's like, I'm going to say his name. You just said his name yeah. multiple times. If he's not coming now, he ain't going to be coming. No. So at this <clears> point, <throat> we have two films based on the same urban legend. Two separate fictional works. Two works of fantasy. Meant as an entertaining, goofy, fun night out for moviegoers. There was no way they could know, while they were lining up for tickets, enjoying huge buckets of popcorn, a living nightmare was playing out for families all over Staten Island. Kids were disappearing in real life, disappearing at the hands of a killer once thought to only exist in people's imaginations. Now, fair warning to you and anyone at home that isn't one of those true crime weirdos, the tale gets pretty dark at this point. And I don't know about you, but I feel like a little guidance is in order here to shepherd us through the rest of this. What do you say we meet our spirit guide for, the, for this evening? This McKellen... Scottish Highland single malt, and what turns out to be an unfortunate turn of events is also a 12-year-old, but for reasons that will become apparent, we'll try not to think too much about that for now. Yep, and we've got this in our glasses now, and we're kind of murdering. The McClelland Highland single malt scotch whiskey. This is a double cask whiskey. The McClellan double cask 12-year-old reveals unrivaled commitment to the mastery of wood and spirit for which the McClellan has been known since it was established in 1824. In an expression of their enduring desire to go beyond the ordinary, to seek out the extraordinary and create peerless single malts. Whiskey Maker's notes state the color is Harvest Sun, which I can agree with. I can't argue with that. I have seen a Harvest Sun of that golden color. The aroma is described as creamy butterscotch with a hint of toffee, apple, candied orange, vanilla custard, and newly filled oak. Keep that up, my pants are going to get squidgy too. On the palate, it is honeyed, ginger, and citrus balanced with raisin and caramel. And the finish contains lingering oak, warm, sweet, and a slight dry effect. I don't know about raisin on the palate, but I'd be raising this glass for another sip. Something's raisin. <laughs> At this point, it's my great displeasure to introduce Frank Bruchette, who worked as a janitor at Willowbrook State School from 1966 to 1968. 
In May of 69, nice, Burchette would be arrested in the South Bronx when a passing police car interrupted his kidnapping and attempted rape of a nine-year-old girl when they were caught in Burchette's parked car in a vacant lot. He was sentenced to four years, but was paroled in January of 72, at this point changing his name to Andre Rand. Andre Rand. I've definitely heard of that name. And might I add, getting caught while you're mid-kidnapping should probably result in more than a sentence of four years and then being paroled in even less than four years? What the hell is that? See, just seven months later, in July... Five-year-old Alice Pereira vanished from the area around Tyson's Lane's apartments in Staten Island. Alice was playing in the building's lobby with her brother and disappeared around 3.30 p.m. when he left her alone. Rand is the prime suspect in Alice's case and was working as a painter in the very same apartment building at the time of Alice's disappearance. Audrey Lynn Nuremberg, 18, was also seen last in July of 77. She had left her family's home in Brooklyn to get cigarettes but she was never heard from again. Now, Nirenberg was an outpatient with hebephrenic schizophrenia, and because she had traveled with her family to Staten Island to see a movie the day before, the theater being next to a campsite that Rand had previously visited, people feel that, as a result of her mental illness, it causes her to repeat actions over and over. And Nirenberg may have returned to the area the following day, and at this point crossed paths with Rand, though he has not been officially connected to her case. But at the same time, I mean, she disappears in the same area where he was known to live. Next up is Shin Lee, who as a 44-year-old nurse, reported missing on July 20th, 1978, from Willowbrook Hospital. She was last seen walking home close to midnight, later found murdered by strangulation and buried in a shallow grave in a wooded area near the facility on August 6th. So right on the facility's grounds. Like there's, I'm presuming there's woods around this place. She's walking home. I mean, it's pretty dangerous. This is the late 70s. I mean, people think that like neighborhoods and stuff are bad now. And But I remember being of a certain vintage. The early 80s, there was always a lot of paranoia about being out late at night, especially around wooded areas. Maybe it was just because of all these urban legends that had grown up in the 60s and 70s. But there was a lot of fear of this happening anyway. And then, of course, you know, if you're from a smaller town and you watch the news and you see New York and Staten Island, it seems like it's always more violent. The big cities always have a crime problem, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, this kind of thing is something that thinking back to when I was growing up and watching TV and watching the news, it seems, yeah, there was a violence problem in the 80s in the New York area and the fact that she was killed and then found buried on the property. I mean, even then, that's some balls to do that. And not having grown up in a big city, I did find it funny reading into this about how kids needed an urban legend to be told not to stray too far from the front door living in New York. I would imagine that living in New York, an urban legend, it wouldn't necessarily be required to keep a kid from going too far i mean you know you're living in that city in the late 70s from everything i've seen and heard about what it, what life was like there at that time i would think you had plenty of reasons not to stay up too late or go too far from your front door yeah. a guy with a hook from your hand for a hand was probably the least of your concerns yep there are people who do not have to have hooks for hands who are willing to do you harm yep 
but then again, I mean, if you grew up in that area in New York City, maybe the perception is that you're a little tougher, you're a little more streetwise, and you can watch out for yourself a little more. But I mean, come on. We have a five-year-old disappearing in July of 72. We have an 18-year-old disappearing in July of 77. A 44-year-old nurse disappearing in July of 78. Next, we have just two months later, Ethel Louise Atwell, 42, last seen October 24th, 1978, also working at Willowbrook State School, where she worked as a physical therapy assistant, as opposed to having happened at close to midnight. This was at 6 a.m. She arrives, parks her car, locks it up. Before she could even get from her car to the building, employees were calling the police after hearing screams from the darkened parking lot. Atwell's pocketbook, one earring, one black shoe, and three black coat buttons, and a part of her set of dentures were all discovered beside her locked car. About 75 feet away in the woods, her keys were also discovered. Now, Atwell has never been seen or heard from again. Atwell and Lee, of course, both working in the same place, a place that Rand was also known to have worked, are both considered victims of Rand, but there is no concrete evidence linking him to either case. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence to link this guy to basically everything that's going on. Yeah, and sadly, the circumstantial evidence is what creates this haunting air of lingering mystery about this whole thing. Yeah, that's that's one of the things. It's always the mystery that keeps people talking about it. Keeps it, you know, going from... I guess generation to generation, people bringing it up. Oh, remember all those unsolved murders? It was probably this guy, but they never found the body. Where do you think he put it? And honestly, what was he doing with these bodies if they were never found? How yep. big is this area that he could have been lurking in, even around the city, that he had hidey holes that he could be putting them in? In 1979, he was accused of raping a young woman and a 15-year-old girl, but neither pressed charges. In 1981, again in July, Holly Ann Hughes, a 7-year-old girl on Staten Island, was sent to the deli by her mother, two blocks away, to purchase a bar of ivory soap. She was last seen buying at around 9.30 p.m. She never returned home and has never been heard from again. A month after Holly's disappearance, her mother, Holly Cedarholm, received a phone call from a man who identified himself as Sal. Sal informed Cedarholm that he was imprisoning the child and asked that they meet so that Cedarholm could engage in sex acts for the camera uh, in exchange for Holly's safe return. What? Yeah. Hold on. In 81, this guy, somebody calls her after her daughter has gone missing mm -hmm. and says, I'm going to force you to make a porno with me. Yep. In order for your daughter to yeah. come home safe. Yep. That's just, I mean. Yeah. It goes without saying that's just fucked up. So Cedarholm goes with detectives to meet this Sal guy at Penn Station in New York City, but he never shows up. Shortly after Holly vanishes, police questioned Rand and searched his car, but they didn't, they didn't prosecute him for nearly 20 years. Now, Cedarholm identified Rand's voice as the same voice she heard during the extortion phone call. Witnesses also claimed to have seen Rand's green Volkswagen circle the business where Holly vanished in 1981. Every once in a while you see a story where somebody has been arrested for a crime that is decades old. Mm -hmm. You'll have DNA evidence has come out and they have shown that this person, whom they initially suspected, but didn't have enough evidence to arrest them and to prosecute them, mm -hmm. did indeed commit this crime. 
And I mean, that's great that they're finally going to pay for their crimes. You know, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Good, because at some point you got to pay for that crap. But the fact that they're getting to the point where people are like 70, 80, 90 years old and they're being arrested for these things. God damn, what did they do? In the meantime, how yep. many things were they involved with in the meantime? And the cops didn't know. Yep. They couldn't touch them. All these things could have been stopped. But, of course, you have to have evidence to be able to prosecute. Authorities also determined that Rand's aunt lived in the same Port Richmond apartment building where Holly's family resided in 81. Rand was convicted of kidnapping Holly in October 2004. Rand was never charged with the child's murder due to lack of evidence. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. And I hope he finally actually got that full sentence because, man, that couple years that he got for the initial kidnapping he was caught in the act of, that shit just can't fly. So moving on to 1983. Now, this was a tricky year to line up chronologically because there's not a lot of details on when things all, like the sequence things happen in. Okay. So in 83, Rand, driving a school bus of all things, picks up a group of 11 children from a Staten Island YMCA, takes them out buys them all a meal without their parents having any idea, and then drives them to Newark Liberty International Airport. None of the children were harmed, but Rand was apprehended and served a whopping 10 months in jail for unlawful imprisonment. So that's 10 months in jail, but apparently in August of the same year, which is only the eighth month, 12 days after Rand was released from prison, so I'm not sure how the school bus kidnapping and being released on August 14th. Uh, not sure how those line up. But anyway. I can only imagine he got time off for quote-unquote good behavior. But now he's a repeat offender. Yeah. Unless for some reason they couldn't link his name, Rand, with his previous name, Rochette. Yeah, possibly. And the two files didn't cross over. In August of 83, 12 days after Rand was released from prison, 11-year-old, Tyhese Jackson was last seen leaving the Mariner's Harbor Motel in Staten Island, where she lived with her mother and three siblings. While her mother was asleep, another resident sent Tyhese out to purchase chicken wings, was never heard from again. Andre Rand had a campsite at the Baron Hirsch Cemetery, less than half a mile from the motel, and a man matching his description was later identified loitering in the motel's parking lot, but again, Rand was interrogated, no charges were filed. Hank Gaforio, 22-year-old, living in Staten Island, described as being kind of slow with an IQ in the 70s. Last seen at the Spa Lounge in Port Benjamin neighborhood at 4 a.m. on June 9, 1984. Before going missing, he was spotted at the diner with Andre Rand in the early morning hours. Gaforio vanished without a trace. Gaforio lived with his parents and three brothers on the same block as Rand and just around the corner from where Holly lived. His body was also never found. So he's mixing it up. He's usually going for women. Mm -hmm. Now, the women's ages have ranged from their 40s all the way down to being children. Mm -hmm. But this is the first instance of him going after a man. And not just a young man or a boy, like a man. This mm -hmm. was a grown man, mm -hmm. even if he was slow. Rand's final victim, and probably his most well-known, was 12-year-old Jennifer Schwager. She was born with Down syndrome and was reported missing July 9th, 1987, after witnesses spotted Jennifer walking with Rand, and after a 35-day search while combing the area around Willowbrook State School again, Jennifer's body was unearthed from a shallow grave, and the remains were possibly identified. Police searched the grounds, 
for evidence and found one of Rand's makeshift campsites close to where she was buried. In 1988, Rand was charged with the kidnapping of first-degree murder Schwager. A verdict on the murder charge specifically could not be reached, but the jury convicted Rand of first-degree kidnapping, and he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. So in 88, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, mm -hmm. and then later in 2004, when new evidence was found, he was given another life sentence for the murder of one of his other young victims. Yep. Uh, officers and inmates at the prison where Rand is currently incarcerated testified regarding conversation which he allegedly bragged about his pedophilic exploits. He confessed to Holly's murder to an inmate and compared himself to the serial killer Ted Bundy. Volunteers continue to search the abandoned property twice a year for evidence related to Rand's other alleged victims to no avail. And like we mentioned earlier, in 2004, Rand was again brought to trial for the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes 23 years earlier. Since there is no statute of limitations in New York for first-degree kidnapping, a jury convicted Rand of the kidnapping, and he was sentenced to another consecutive 25 years to life. Good. He would have been eligible for parole in 2008 if not convicted of a second kidnapping, but now he won't be eligible until 2037, the ripe old age of 93 years old. And with any luck, maybe they'll find another victim and tack on another sentence. That man can end his goddamn days behind bars. We can, we can only hope. All of his alleged victims vanished from or were murdered in the Staten Island area, with the exception of Nirenberg. Their cases remain unsolved. Now, speaking of 2008, this is also the year that Cropsey returned to the silver screen as a documentary. When according to a 2010 article in the New York Times by John Anderson, after Josh Zeman and Barbara Brancaccio, Brancaccio? Brancaccio? Brancaccio. Yeah, I think you're right. They chose to take a walk around the grounds of the abandoned Willowbrook Mental Institution and dated for a short time after their initial little stroll through a haunted landscape and spent the next decade or so, you know, nights and weekends investigating the cases against Andre Rand and the history and character of the borough. But they also wound up examining the controlling nature of narrative. They are quoted as saying, Cropsey is really a movie about storytelling, says Brancaccio. It's about a small town location. Staten Island is an odd choice for a small town, but whatever. Uh, a series of unfortunate events that affects the entire community and what they told themselves about it. By the time we get to court and see the outcome, I think it's not even relevant. The people had determined what the story of the missing children was, and it had become part of their own mythology. It's a mythology sparked by the collision of urban legend and urban nightmare. Missing children, a perpetrator, and the location itself, Willowbrook, on the fringe of the island's greenbelt, which had where it housed the city's mentally ill under disgraceful conditions. Children growing up around the shuttered institution, it was synonymous with horror. Mr. Rand had, after all, become the real-life prophecy of nightmares, the fictional, drooling, child-napping maniac on the grounds of Willowbrook, the institution where he had once worked. Only one of the five children who disappeared are addressed in the movie ever, was ever found. 12-year-old Jennifer Schwager, a girl with Down syndrome, whose body was unearthed in 87. Rand was convicted of her kidnapping. The other simply vanished. According to Donna Cutugno, a Staten Islander who founded the volunteer search group Friends of Jennifer for missing children with the Schwager case, she says, we still have those other missing children. The boogeyman wasn't a myth. 
In a weird callback to our Backrooms episode, turns out that the brothers of Holly Ann Hughes, the second girl Mr. Rand is convicted of kidnapping, boycotted the movie, referencing a quote-unquote Blair Witch-style sensationalism they thought the film was trying to generate. A writer for Chud.com, great name, Chud. De- <laughs> Devin Farassi says, a quote, I think it's Blair Witch backwards. You create a scenario where people assume it's fake because we've seen so many faux documentary and found footage films in the horror genre. And then you blow their minds with, it's all true. Mm. According to the documentary on Cropsey, some people along with detectives speculated that Rand may have been involved with Satanism and provided the children to be sacrificed. There were many people who thought Rand was not alone in the commission of his crimes, and many believed he was passing the children around to his friends in the underground network of homeless and mentally disabled people living in the tunnel systems under the former Willowbrook State School. Now, I think the idea of Rand trafficking these unfound victims might be more plausible than actually providing them to a satanic cult. And the reason I say this not to say that he didn't just outright murder them. He probably just outright murdered them. But, you know, when it comes to the theory that he was sex trafficking them or sending them to a satanic cult, it's probably more likely in that scenario that they would have been sex trafficked. Why? Because the whole satanic panic of the 80s was really blown out of proportion with most stories turning out to be completely false. There was this whole thing with hypnotic regression for kids who were supposedly victims of satanic the satanic cults that turned out to be wrong. And these hypnotic regressions were actually planting false memories as opposed to drawing out actual memories. Oh, okay. So there's a whole big thing about satanic panic in the 80s. And I think it started with these school kids were claiming that, that they vaguely remembered some some activities they were involved with and it got back to a school counselor and then the counselors brought the parents in and then they ended up ordering that these kids go to psychiatrists for hypnotic regression. But if I'm remembering this correctly, they might not have been licensed therapists. They were kind of, they were hypnotists or something, but the hypnotic regression was becoming a big thing. Mm. And the people they brought these kids to were really just kind of at the beginnings of this hypnotic regression movement. And they ended up planting false memories, putting the kids into a hypnotic state. And instead of asking them what happened, suggested to the kids, did this happen? And then the kids said, oh, yes, that's what happened. And it turns out years later, these memories that these kids had were actually planted during these things. So the whole satanic panic thing, I always take that with a grain of salt. Now, not to say that people weren't panicked about it. Mm -hmm. It was all over the news, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't as much of a thing if it was a thing at all that the news made it out to be yeah i it's funny you mention it being on the news and being all over the media i recently took time to try and binge watch as much of the old school original robert stack hosted unsolved mysteries uh, as I could. yeah i'd seen that show as a kid and the iconic intro music yeah. just when I saw that you could stream episodes, I I had to. Watching them back now, it's hilarious how many different cases of paranormal activity or kidnapping or anything up to that effect, they would crowbar 
references to robes and candles and nudity and yeah. worshiping and prayer in there for no reason. Yeah. I, I remember one case specifically that talked about a woman who disappeared, but a, one of the witnesses who saw her before she disappeared mentioned something about him going out to a barn where she was where they found her kneeling in front of a picture of the devil with candles and it made no it offered no insight as to the, what happened it was yeah. just this it was just this little aside to say you know all this stuff happened and oh by the way she yeah. worships satan also satanism yeah, yeah also the hypnotic therapy that i was talking about as unreliable as it is during the 80s and i guess into the 90s too but uh, there's a lot of people who rely on that with alien abduction stories as well. Mm -hmm. And as unreliable as it is, these people are told or go into this hypnotic therapy and then suddenly these memories come out about gray aliens and kidnapping and, you know, all these tests that are performed on them and things like that. But it all comes back to this hypnotic regression, which is very, very tenuous as to how legitimate any of this is there was a movie that came out some time ago that had Lila jo the mm. Lila jo 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 yeah and or, uh it, the fourth kind I yes believe. and that movie got just crucified because after it came out all the stuff that you were talking about kind of came out after to say that this movie based on the accounts of people put under hypnotic regression yeah suddenly started people started picking those accounts apart and saying yeah. well no like like this whole movie is based on on lies like the accounts people were providing under hypnosis were not true they were yeah. planted by the people who were leading the the sessions and i think uh i'm not 100 percent sure on this but i think the person who um provided the stories that were doing the hypnotic therapies mm -hmm. were not licensed therapists yeah i yeah. think that came out as well and it just shows that you know these things are not reliable no and with that we come to the end and i gotta ask rico man in the case of staten island's cropsy maniac he fought the lore but did the lore win that is a real good question now the true crime stuff i'm not super into the true crime but urban legends i'm super into the urban legends the true crime stuff is really depressing and really sad in a lot of cases, but here it mixes in well. Now, years ago, I'm fairly certain I watched the documentary on Cropsey, and one of the things about Cropsey and the urban legend um, that I was always confused in is Andre Rand. They never mentioned the name Cropsey attributed to him. So what is the connection? I always wondered what the actual connection was. Maybe I wasn't paying attention enough to the documentary. It didn't stick in my mind. It wasn't all that memorable. But from my understanding, Cropsey was already an urban legend in the area. And then when Rand started doing his activities, the urban legend got mixed with the actual factual kidnappings and murders and disappearances. And that's where the story mingles and Rand essentially becomes Cropsey. And I don't like to say it because of the true crime aspect, but that aspect, I think the lore wins because you've got that fantasy blending with reality and keeping it going and bringing a whole new light into it, a whole new other kind of exposure 
to the urban legend, and I think the lore wins. Yeah, there there were so many levels to this urban legend that range from the campy to the nightmarish. Everyone, or at least everyone who's cool, grew up with these tales of hook-handed maniacs on the teens on Lover's Lane who are forced to drive off in a hurry, and they hear scraping noises outside the car, and the next morning they find a, a hook hanging from the door handle. Or you know, a moldy Dorito. Or a moldy Dorito. What not everyone knows is that this escaped killer has such a strong tie to a real-life murder, and there are very real young people that dis that disappeared, leaving behind families and way too many questions to bear. Now, while the connection wasn't intentional, this was still such an insane culmination of so many things that one of the people behind the documentary, this guy Josh Zeman, he, he sums it up with this quote, and I sort of, I can't really frame it much better. He says, the kids' urban legends were about the escaped mental patients who lived in the woods with a hook for a hand. But the adult urban legends were about the satanic panic, devil-worshipping, heavy metal music, child pornography, and child slavery rings. There was this child-snatching hysteria and a convergence of fears that drove Staten Islanders into a frenzy. Now, has the original, old-school, age-old age tale about the hook-handed maniac fallen out of vogue? Perhaps. Yeah. But as much as it's no longer told by parents and teens the way it used to be, its influence as a template for the whole killer with insert blank for a hand reference can't be denied. I mean, you look at I Know What You Did Last Summer. Heck, you could even talk about Squidward's hash-slinging slasher. You know, these are all <laughs> examples of, 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 of a fictional killer with something in place of one hand. You could even talk about Candyman. You know, to, to you know, do a little callback to that. Yep. Another movie, which incidentally is based on an urban legend. Yep. I want to say that the lore of Cropsey still wins for all these reasons, even if there is a far sadder and darker legacy that will continue to live alongside it for a very select group of people. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I kind of mangled what I was saying, but I think that quote really puts it into a very easily understood way of thinking about it. Now, again, like I said, I think the lore wins here. As much as I knew that Cropsey was based on a real person and the fact that, you know, I really love 80s slashers, the burning among them, the real-life connection or inspiration for these serial killers also needs to be acknowledged. Uh, basing a character from a horror movie off of a person in real life is not anything unique. I mean, there are tons of documentaries, tons of documentaries about killers and little one-off cheap horror movies that are made about these killers but movies franchises are based on these things too popular movies like you know the highbrow horror are also based off of these things for example you've got norman bates from psycho buffalo bill from silence of the lambs and leatherface they were all based on the same serial killer and possible cannibal ed gein three very different versions of the same character. Yeah. Um, Norman Bates a little more low-key, which apparently Ed Gein was. He lived in this community for years. Nobody had any idea that he was a grave robber. Nobody had any idea that he had dug up his mother's corpse and brought it back into his house, that he was wearing her clothes and talking to himself in her voice. He was convicted of murdering two people in town, but was suspected eventually of the disappearance of people from around the area um, especially hitchhikers and people who were just kind of passing through. For years, he had made a belt out of human skin, 
from what I know. Um, they found furniture that had been patched with bones and with skin. I distinctly remember a lamp with nipples on the shade. I thought there were nipples on a belt, too. Oh, there may I have can't been. be 100% sure, but yeah, he was apparently doing this. These were the things that they found in his home because they tracked, a, I think it was a blood trail that he, after he had murdered somebody, back to his home. And people trusted him with his kids. So he was a very low-key person until they discovered what was going on. Norman Bates was also very low-key. He was this guy who was running a hotel with his elderly mother who nobody ever saw. And it turns out it's because he had killed and stuffed her and stuck her in the window and was dressing up in her clothes, etc., etc. And you've got Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill, this other aspect, he's murdering people and he's making a skin suit out of them. And then you've got Leatherface. Apparently, Toby Hooper was Christmas shopping. And he thought, my God, I'd love to just run through these crowds with a chainsaw. He was so frustrated at the crowds during Christmas. This was around the time he was coming up with the idea for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and thought to himself, what would happen if there was a whole family of Ed Geins? Mm -hmm. And that's where that comes from. So we've oh, got okay. this, these three very, very well-known characters from these three very popular movies, two of them franchises, that are based on one guy. Mm -hmm. Real-life horrors, but they've turned it into entertainment, right? Yep. Um, you've got John Carpenter has said that the idea for young Michael Myers staring blankly at, the, at a wall for years in an institution was inspired by a patient he saw in a real institution. Freddy Krueger wasn't based off of a specific person, but there were real events that inspired Wes Craven to create that character. Now, as a kid in his neighborhood, apparently there was an old scarred man that uh, would wander around the neighborhood and that scared Wes Craven as a child. But years later, the dream killer part was also inspired by several deaths of teenage immigrants from Cambodia and Laos. Laos? Laos? These kids had been having nightmares and feared that if they slept, they would be killed by something that was pursuing them in their dreams. Some of these kids had been so terrified, they forced themselves to stay awake for days before they ended up dying. Hmm. And then you've got The Exorcist, was based on the exorcism case of Roland Doe, a pseudonym, um, a possessed boy from the 40s. Yep. Uh, the Wolf Creek series, um, Australian uh, slasher movies, were based on the crimes of Ivan, is it Milat or Milat? Milat. Ivan Milat in Australia. The killer from Scream, another Wes Craven connection, was actually inspired by Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper who murdered five students in Florida in 1990. And there's tons more true crime and sport inspired horror movies. There's even the suggestion that Jason Voorhees murdering people at camp was based off of teenagers or campers being murdered. I think it was in Sweden somewhere at a place called Lake Bonham. Okay. Uh, in the 60s. Interesting. So there's even that little thread there. But Cropsy is kind of unique because there was already the urban legend, became mixed with reality, mm -hmm. even after or during the movies when they came out, and then kind of stayed that way and evolved into its own new thing. I have to say that I'm surprised that Danny Rowling, for crimes committed in 1990, I was not aware that the media still gave serial killers like fun nicknames. Yeah. As as recently as 1990, I always thought that was the product of a bygone era 
you know, perhaps when subscriptions and sales and things like that required a more sensationalist motivation to to sell to sell issues. Yeah. So to find out that as recently as 1990, you still had someone who was given the name the Gainesville Ripper. Yeah. I I was not aware of that. I find that very surprising. Yeah. I I thought that uh, years ago they had kind of done away with that because of the overly sensationalistic nature of it mm -hmm. and it not being very respectful to the victims. Well, here we are. Tried calling Lucy, but go figure. No cell reception. Imagine that. No cell reception deep, deep in the woods. Dude, we're at this camp. There's no one even here. Is this even the right camp? Uh, no B Bosco. Yep, this is the one. Well, hello? hello? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Shh, shh, shh. What are you doing, man? Seriously? An eerily abandoned summer camp at night and you pull a rookie move like that? You never watched a horror movie as a kid? For your information, watching our tax sinking into the mud was no walk in the park, thank you. You know, I actually had a friend tell me he heard from someone. That horse actually died while filming, right? Anyway, hello, look at me. I'm Ben McDewey. I'm really loud. Please come kill me. And I love horses. Unbelievable. But at least there's a pretty sweet fire still going. Might as well sit down and... Ooh, maybe they have Mark. Oh, crap. Mallow? Dude, there is something in the woods. Can't you hear that? It's getting closer. Uh, uh, Mr. Voorhees, sir, uh, for the record, I never agreed with what people said about Friday the 13th being a ripoff of Halloween and your character being a copy and paste of Michael Myers solely for the sake of a quick payday. Your story is equally as important and very consistent. And frankly, it is my personal belief that Michael Myers had to up his game and become more like you from Halloween 4 on just to compete in the genre that you propped up for all the years he was away. Whoa, 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 whoa. relax, Rico. Look, it's just Lucy, co covered in blood. Uh, hello there. Lucy, this is my buddy Rick. Oh, I know who he is. Uh, wings? Wings? Why, why does she suddenly have wings? Pretty sure the hooves are new too, and your your face is more horse-like than I remember. Devalina told me all about you. You remember her? My sister. Shit. Well, would you look at the time? 3.33 a.m. already. Uh, we really should be going. Get back here. What, 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 what is this everywhere? Is this Marshmallow? Oh, it's in my hooves. Disgusting. Ben, this is the part where we run now. Go, go, go! Hey, Rico, Rico, head, head for those trees. Maybe we can lose her. But Ben, if we lose her, where can the listeners at home find us? Oh, they can find us on Twitter, at IFTLPod. On Instagram at iftl.pod. If they're on Facebook and over the age of 40, they can find us at I Fought the Lore with the space and then the word pod. Oh, and finally, gmail.com if you want to possibly drop us a story to, I don't know, maybe be read on the air, I Fought the Lore at gmail.com. Thank you, ACAST. 
for hosting this ridiculousness. Run, 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 run.